The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Thank you, guys. You can be seated and pull out your copy of God's Word. Hope you brought it with you. If you didn't, you don't have one, or you just forgot it, raise your hand and our ushers will bring you one of those. Blue Bible, it's our gift to you if you don't have one, and uh, it's our gift to you this morning if you just forgot it. First Thessalonians is where we're at. I believe it's on page 573. If you also didn't get uh, sermon notes or a pen, just stick your hand up as well if you want to follow along in that way, and they will uh, deliver one to you. Our gift to you, faster delivery than even UPS or our ushers here. Um, they'll get you those things real quick. But we're going to continue our journey here in uh, 1 Thessalonians and uh, this, this theme of build what lasts. And uh, this is what we're doing here as a church built on the foundation of uh, the apostles and prophets, but Jesus Christ himself being our cornerstone. And now we have the, the great word of God that instructs us in all that we are doing. And so today we're actually in part two of uh, just a little mini series here as we've gotten into chapter two on leaders worth following. And so last week, uh, this idea of a church worth imitating, this church in Thessalonica of that age, which First Thessalonians was written to, was a young church uh, just being formed. And yet, even in their young stage, was a church worth imitating that they are held out as an example of a God-honoring, Christ-exalting, disciple-making, Bible-believing truth. They are a church worth imitating to the other churches of their day and to our day as well. And in part, they were worth imitating because they had leaders worth following. And so that's what chapter two is about. So turn there with me. Last week, we uh, began with the first eight verses. And I just want to point something out to you as just as Bible students is this, this chapter begins really with two sections of three equal parts. Today, we're going to be in nine to 12. But these three parts, they, they instruct us on leadership. And the last one is a parental example of how to be a leader. Last week, motherhood, and as we'll see today, uh, fatherhood here. So let's read these uh, verses that we're going to focus on today. First Thessalonians 2, verses 9 to 12. Follow along here as I read it. It says this, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you, and encouraged you, and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We'll stop there, but redemption, this is uncommon leadership. This is uncommon leadership. So write this down if you're taking notes. A church worth imitating needs uncommon leadership. It's just really another way of saying leaders worth following, but it needs uncommon leadership. What is common in the world is a, a certain type of leadership, but what is uncommon is a biblical type of leadership. And so before we get down into the, the passage even deeper, I want to read to you two examples uh, from a business, from the marketplace here. First, consider this example of a common leader. Jenna was a senior vice president of field operations for a large telecommunications company. She was a serious leader who, even at five feet, three inches, had a way of towering over the people who worked for her. 
Jenna was a smart manager with strong experience. But Gemma, well, Jenna, rather, my daughter's name is Gemma, but Jenna was an absolute tyrant. Her colleagues said she created an, an environment of hysteria. She created fear all around her and intimidated and bullied people until she got what she wanted. Her primary approach to leadership was, what more can you do for me? When one of her managers said, she's a bit like the ruthless Miranda Priestley in The Devil Wears Prada, I got the picture immediately. Not only was Jenna a bully, but she struck at random. It was hard to predict what would set her off or who would be the next victim. One person recalled, you felt like you could be the next guy. I was stressed on the edge and at risk around her. Her colleagues joke, there needs to be a storm warning system for Jenna. People need to know when it's time to duck and cover. Not a leader that you want to follow, right? A leader that needs their own weather app to know when they're going to strike is not a, a, a leader worth following. But this is common leadership. There's uncommon leadership, which the scriptures talk about and which we see here in our passage today. So what makes an uncommon leader? Let's look deeper into this passage. Verse 9 uh, gets us going here. It says this, uncommon leadership is people work. It's people work. Look at the verse with me here. Look how it begins. And it's, it's hard work to boot, right? And it's around the clock work. He says this, our, our labor and our toil. This is a diligent exertion of effort, right? This is an outpouring, the kind that, that strains and leaves you exhausted as you work. They worked around the clock. See what he says, that we worked night and day. Not punching in the 40-hour work week, but somebody who is on call 24-7, always available and always working. This is hard work. These leaders, Paul describing how he and Silas and even Timothy worked among them. But why did he work this way? Was he a workaholic? No, look here. So that, or that we might not be a burden to any of you. See, they worked this way. Their work was hard people work because they didn't want to be a burden to the people. It was to actually to lighten their load. And you have to understand the context here is because what was happening, Paul came in and Silas, and that you can read about this in Acts 17, but they come into the, into the city, into Thessalonica. They have great success. They're preaching the gospel to people. They're working hard, meeting with people, doing the, 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 the necessary work of being available night and day preaching the gospel to those that would listen and God gave them great fruit and after probably uh, somewhere around three to six months of ministry there the unbelievers the people of the city actually rose up and kicked them out of the city and so they they had to flee for their life which was pretty common for Paul on his missionary journeys who would come have great success People would be saved, and then riots would raise, he'd be beaten, stoned sometimes, or other times he would get away, and he would slip out in, uh, in, in the middle of the night or whatever and uh, flee for his life. But what was also happening in those times is Paul would come and do that, but on his heels and at other times would be these hucksters, guys who had a, a, an agenda to, to, for their own personal gain. They would come with a false gospel, and they would come really to milk and to use the people in order to build their own personal wealth. And then once they had you know, kind of gotten what they could get out of that city, then they would slip off into the night taking with them all that they had taken from the people. And so there's this thought maybe among some of them, was Paul just one of these guys? 
Was Paul's gospel just another one of these false gospels? Was he another one of these tricksters, one of these guys that just came in with an agenda to, with greed and flattering us and to take us away? But no, Paul's saying, no, we didn't do that. Notice how we didn't just lay around and we didn't just try to get rich among you, but we worked hard night and day. We were doing people work among you. What were they doing while they were doing it? They were preaching the gospel, right? While we proclaim to you the gospel of God. They came with an agenda. They came to work hard. They came to talk with as many people as they could about this guy named Jesus to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And what is that, you ask? So the good news of Jesus Christ, what they came proclaiming, and what is the same gospel that is good news for us today is that we humans, we are sinful, that we have offended a holy God, that there is a God who exists who has created us, and we, by our sin, we have offended not only those people around us, but also God himself. And we've tried to do it on our own. We've been rebellious. And yet, Christ by his grace and his mercy came and lived the perfect life and died on our behalf. And that by recognizing that repenting of our sin and, and placing our faith in Christ, that we can be declared right with God. We can be in relationship with God through, this, through Jesus himself, by his Holy Spirit living in us, enabling us to live a new life. The old has passed away, the new has come. And we can do that. We, we now have the access to that. We don't have to go through priests. We don't have to go through a sacrificial system because Jesus was the one who did that once and for all for the forgiveness of sins. That was the good news. That was the hard work that they were doing. And imagine going into a city where that was, was a foreign concept. Who is this Jesus that they had never heard of and preaching and doing the hard work to explain the scriptures, to explain to them where True life, new life can be found. But hard work, this is the defining trait of every believer, right? This should be the defining trait of every person who desires to build what lasts. Not only for leaders, but remember back a few weeks ago as we were in chapter 1. Look over there, chapter 1, verse 3, right? Paul's praying for them. He's saying, I'm constantly remembering you in my prayers before God. Your, what? Your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness and hope. That they were working hard for the gospel, this labor of love that is other-focused. Not me-focused, not building up my own kingdom, but building up what lasts and pouring out for other people. This is the defining trait of every person. Gospel works involves people and effort. All of us get this, and leaders worth following especially get this. Because what? We put effort into the things that we believe in, right? Do we truly believe the gospel? is the good news of salvation unto all who believe. Do you really believe that? Do you have the conviction of that, that the, that the only hope and help for our world, the brokenness that exists, the tensions that exist, the, the, the craziness and the scandal and all the, the depravity that is out there, that the only true fix for that is in the gospel. It's found in people coming to faith in Christ. And if we truly believe that, then we put our effort into that. Then we are, we are okay with, with uh, being exhausted and spent for that aim. That's what we really, when we really believe, we're really convicted of something. When we really want something, we put the effort into it. And we want someone to be saved, we put the effort into it. Did the Astros want to win the World Series? 
They did. Did they do it by just, you know, slouching off in spring training? Did they do it by, you know, just kind of meandering into the batting cages and into practice throughout the year and just going to, you know, games? No. They won a World Series based on the effort that they put into it. They labored and toiled in the weight room, in the batting cages. They were around the clock, on the mound, taking flies, taking grounders. They worked hard. They wanted it. They put the effort into it. And they won. Mind you, you should know this too. I've actually been thinking of this. I'm a Brewers fan. I grew up in Wisconsin. Last fall, I lived in Chicago while we were at the training. And who won the World Series last year? The Cubs. Now we moved back to Texas. We lived in Texas before that. But now we moved back to Texas. And who wins the World Series this year? Astros. So I think I might have to take an October vacation to Milwaukee next year. And hopefully the Brewers can win the World Series next year. Because wherever I am, they seem to win. And I don't get much sleep as I watch them uh, each night late into the night. But, uh, but the Astros won. They, they worked hard. They put in the effort in order to achieve what they wanted and believed in. And uncommon leadership is more than just meetings. It's more than just decision making. It's going above and beyond with people putting in the work for the sake of the gospel. And so we have to get this. We have to be willing to roll up our sleeves and do the work using our gifts, the things that God has skilled us and enabled us to do for his glory, both here as we gather in the church and as we scatter in another 30 minutes or so and as we go and live our lives, as we are uncommon leaders. You want to be a leader like this? You want to? Maybe, maybe not. You're like, well, I'm just, you know, God hasn't gifted me as to be a leader, but do you want to be? You want to be leaders, they get this. They get the hard work. So if you want to be it, examine your schedule. That's where I'd say start first. Examine your schedule. We put effort, we make time for the things that we love. We make time for the things that we're convicted about. And so is, your, is a healthy portion of my time devoted to gospel work using the skills and gifts that God has given me in joyful service for his glory? We need to move those extremes, right? The things that maybe we're uh, devoting too much time to that are maybe unhealthy or whatnot, we need to lessen some of those. Maybe they're not bad, they're just good, but we're spending an unhealthy amount of time for it. And we need to move those extremes as we, as we uh, want to use our gifts for God's glory and lead other people in it as we work day and night as an example for the gospel, knowing that what we do backs up what we say. Because here's the second point in verse 10, that uncommon leadership is about character. The hard work of a leader is backed up by his or her character. He says this, you are witnesses, right? Said you saw how we lived our life. Nothing was hidden from you and from who else? Look at verse 10, you are witnesses and God also. God also, that's, that's a pretty big uh, uh, witness for us, right? God who knows everything. He saw how what we did backed up what we saw, that we worked hard for your benefit, for you, and our conduct backs it up. Look at here, these three descriptors that he uses. He says, you are witnesses how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you. These three things, this holiness, right? He's saying, he said, you, you saw my example. You saw how I acted as someone who is set apart. That's what holiness is. It's, it's I'm set apart from the world. I'm not uh, just doing those things. I'm avoiding those uh, socially accepted patterns of sin. 
Those things were not characteristic to me. Sure, maybe they're acceptable in life. There's those things I'm not doing, those things that are outright wrong. That's what he's saying by righteous. I'm not doing those things, those, I'm morally upright. But also those things that are just those, you know, we know they're wrong. They're, uh, they're against what the scripture would teach. He's saying, I'm holy. I've, I've acted righteously, doing what is right and not what is wrong. And that I'm blameless or above reproach. That I'm consistent no matter who I'm around or what I'm doing. There's no charges of sin or wrongdoing. There's nobody questioning why he's doing that or nobody questioning his motives because he's holy, he's righteous, he's blameless. Everyone, as Paul is appealing to his example, not for his own glory, but for the sake of the gospel, mind you, he's not just trying to vindicate himself, but he's, he's saying these things to, for the sake of the gospel. I did these things. Nobody can question my motive in this because it was for you. It's for the Lord. I wanted to honor him and all that I did in my work. There's no questions. There was no, who, him? Well, yeah, I don't know. That's maybe, right? But it's not only our deeds, but our character. These things prove our leadership. It's not just about results, is it? You know, it's not just about results. The marketplace and business, the workforce, they may tolerate double standards, lack of integrity in order to get the results, but the church cannot tolerate those things. The church cannot because God doesn't. It's all over the, the scriptures. It's all over the scriptures it's about our character. And, and let me just add this here. As you consider leading in, in the marketplace and in your business and how you lead, just because the, the workforce and the marketplace may tolerate double standards, lack of integrity, you know, using other people, manipulation, all those things to get ahead, it may, uh, it may tolerate tyrants in the workforce just because you get the results, you know, that you, that you meet quotas, that you're making money. Just because those things are tolerated doesn't mean God's people should lead in such a way as well. As a matter of fact, as you look at some of the, you know, successful companies here in Texas, others, you know, that I've gotten to know or whatnot, those that are leaders, not only in this city, but maybe across the state or whatnot, some of their core values are things like humility and integrity. That's pretty cool. You see those at the top of the list of these, of, uh, of these companies that are doing great work for the Lord, that are, are leading their businesses and have a workforce that is living differently than than what is just tolerated in a, in, in a secular culture. So just because it's tolerable doesn't mean that it's, that it's right or good or that we need to live that way. But I've said it uh, many times throughout our short history here as a church that character counts, right? Character counts the church too easily. Not only is this a problem in the marketplace, but the church can also too easily sweep lack of character in its leaders under the rug. They say, well, look at the results. He has a huge ministry. He's, people are hearing the word of God. People are being saved. Surely God is blessing it. And I'm not saying big ministries are wrong or things like that. But what, when you, what it boils down to is that character counts especially in its leaders. The results are up to God, but what you'll find in passages all across the scriptures and places like 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and other places where it's talking about leaders is the emphasis is always on the character of the man or the woman who is leading, not on the results, because who are results up to? The results are up to God, but godly men and women are who we need leading. It's always about character, more than their function, more than the philosophy, more than the fruit. But we need men and women, those seeking the Lord and overflowing with gratitude and with, uh, with this humility and integrity in the Lord. 
appearances, accomplishments are not what we imitate. It's character that stems directly from the Lord Jesus. That's what we imitate. That's what we are about. It's those types of leaders that we want to follow in what our church needs and what makes a church worth imitating, how we build what is last. So do you want to be an uncommon leader? You want to put these things into practice? Well, not only should you examine how you spend your time, but here's another thing. You should examine your own life but also invite other people into examining your own life. Now, this is a dangerous thing, right? Ask your wife on a regular basis. Do you observe some things in my life? Or ask a colleague or a a brother or sister in the Lord, do you observe these things and to do it consistently? And so I've just come up with these four questions here that are a great starting place, a great rubric to uh, assess our character because sometimes they're blind spots to us, right? And so as we want to grow in our leadership, as we want to grow in how we lead people for God's glory... Ask somebody, ask your spouse on a regular basis, do you observe consistent behavior? Do you observe a consistent behavior? Am I the same in every context you see me? When I'm with the kids, when I'm with you, while I'm at home, when I'm at work, when I'm around believers, when I'm around unbelievers, or whether I'm at church or not? Am I putting on a show and I'm with a pastor and somebody different here? But a leader has consistent behavior. They're holy, they're blameless in every context. They have consistency not to, they know that they are here to please whom? Please God. Second, do you observe questionable conduct, specifically with the opposite gender? Do I uh, speak honorably and affectionately of them, of my own spouse? Do you observe this questionable conduct? Do you observe improper speech? Do you hear me gossiping? Do you hear me talking poorly about other people? Would I say here uh, in a one-on-one conversation with you, could I say that in public in front of everybody? Do you observe improper speech, not just the things like cussing and whatnot? Am I busybody meddling in things? Lastly, do you observe this growth in godliness? Do you observe a growth in godliness? That as you examine my life, this is why it's important to ask these questions on a consistent basis. As you're accountable, as you're seeking feedback and how you can grow, do you notice that I'm a different man or a different woman today than I was when I asked you these questions last month? Have you seen a growing love for Christ in me? Have you seen a growing love for other people in my life? Have you seen a a growing tenacity to be in the word of God? Have you seen an increased use of my time for the things of God and a lessening of my time in the things that are are unfruitful or that that are not good for me? Are you seeing a growth in godliness? These are things that leaders do. These, that leaders know that they can put themselves out there. They want to. They desire to grow. If you're unwilling to be accountable to ask questions like this, committed to growth, then, then I would say you, you couldn't be a leader because leaders are always before people. Because character counts. Leadership is about character. You are witnesses and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, toward you. And look at this final point here. Verses 11 and 12. Uncommon leadership is movement. It's movement. And the example is fatherhood here. Biblical fatherhood. 
Dads, take notice how to lead your family from these two verses. Don't take, don't take notice. Don't get your cues from sitcoms and other things. Get your, get your cues on how to lead your family from God's word. This is our authority. But the father's job is to grow and to mature his children. It's moving them from infancy to adulthood, right? That's the father's job. As, as, as children come into your life, as God gives you these gifts, you, you're to raise them up and send them out, right? There's one uh, friend of mine who's from East Texas. He says, you get them grown and you get them going, right? You get them grown and you get them going. But it's about movement, literal movement out of the house, but more so, more in growing them and moving them in godliness. American culture says we get about 18 years to do that, right? As I was working on this and thinking in my own life, I realized that I'm over a quarter of the way done in raising up Malachi, who's five, Gemma's two years old, so I got a little bit more time with her, but as my role as a dad and moving and growing them in godliness, I have only about 18 years, obviously it's a lifetime, but where I have direct influence in their life, living under my roof. My job is to move them towards Christ. And this is what fatherhood is. It's, it's about growth in Christ or moving our children towards Christ. And he gives us, here's three ways that that happens, right? Do you notice this? There's these patterns of three here. Do you see it? Exhortation, encouragement, and charging or imploring. This exhorted, these are fascinating words here. This exhortation, how we exhorted you. This means to come alongside. Greek word is parakaleo. And what's interesting in that is it's the same word used of the Holy Spirit. Know that? The Holy Spirit in uh, John 16 is called the paraclete. He's the helper. He's the one who comes alongside. And this is a great picture for fatherhood. This is a great picture for what leaders do. All right? So picture with me. As you're moving somebody along, as you're trying to grow them towards Christ, obviously you're the one who is more spiritually mature as a father, right? Or as a discipler. And so our tendency can be to be, we're up here, they're down there, and to say, hey, come on up here. Come on, it's, it's great up here. Get, climb, the, climb the stairs. Come on up. But that's not what leaders do. Leaders exhort. We come alongside. The, the, the picture here is, no, you come down to the level where they're at, and you walk alongside them, saying, no, this is how you make it up this step. This is how you get through this step. Come on up. Follow me as we move towards Christ together. That's the concept of exhortation. This is a, this is a coming along, walking with them, and also encouraging. What's interesting here about this, uh, this word here, encouragement, is there's a couple words in the, in the New Testament used for encouragement. Actually, the word exhortation in many places is also translated encouragement. But in this case, encouragement is really used to comfort or console someone while they're grieving or suffering. It's to be the shoulder that cries on. It's to help somebody when, uh, when they are hurting or in a tough spot. And kind of the, the, you know, the secular mentality of a father is somebody who's what? Who's kind of rough and, and gruff, right? Like, suck it up, son. You know, get over it. But that's not the biblical uh, mentality here. Biblical ideas. Fathers know you come alongside. You're tender in these things. You're not babying. That's not the idea. But you're coming along and you're, you are consoling somebody who is, who is faint-hearted, Who's having, a, who's having a rough time, who is, who is spiritually depleted. You're coming along, you're comforting them, you're, you're consoling them. This is, uh, uh, Paul will use it later in, in chapter 5, verse 14. He'll say comfort or encourage the faint-hearted. It's interesting, this is the word that is used in John 11 when Jesus is ministering to Lazarus' family. 
after Lazarus has died and he comes, he, he encourages them in this same way. This is what fathers do. This is what leaders do. We help people who are faint-hearted, who are in tough spots. But not only that, look at the last word here. This is where, this is where we like to do, right? We want to charge you, right? We want to implore, to appeal, to motivate, to, to coach you, right? We want to come along. We want to say, hey, go get them. Go do this. This is where you need to go. Follow me this way. We want to be the coach, right? The exhorter is kind of the guide, right? Come along with me. Follow me. Let's go and do this. The encourager is the counselor. The listening ear, the charging is the coach, you can do it. Come on, you can go. Let's go, let's go, let's go. The encourager, the, the coacher, the motivator. These are the things that fathers do. This is how we move our children towards Christ and godliness. This is how we move them in maturity in life. But what, to what end do we do these three things? And charge do what? to walk in a manner worthy of God. And so we do these three things, not necessarily the, the idea here is that we, we teach and we encourage and we motivate as a leader, as a father-like leader to live a life that honors God now and will one day what result in eternity with God under his rule and, and his glory. You see that? Walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you now into his own kingdom and glory. So there's both implications here, right? That as we are leading in this way, as we are discipling, as we are moving people in this way, it's to live a life different now, but also reminding them of what is yet to come, that our reward is yet to come, that come on, we can walk this way, we can work this way, we can, we can live a life that honors God. And this is what dads, this is what leaders do. This is really the definition of discipleship, isn't it? It's movement, knowing that we've never arrived, but we are always growing. And leaders get that. They're motivated to do that, and they're taking along others with us, because we recognize that if we stop or we stagnate, then what happens? We die. There's no staying in the middle with the Christian life. You're either growing or you're dying. It's not, like, it's not like we just kind of stop here. If we've stopped, all of life is moving, and that means that we are going in the wrong direction. And so leaders get this. It's movement. It's movement towards Christ, and we work. We get to work equipping others. We want to see this movement in their walk with God. And this is, this is such a, a, a word that is kind of cliche in the Christian life, but it, the picture here is beautiful because it is. It's this, the Christian life is one of movement. The footwear of Christians are athletic shoes, right? We don't put on slippers. The Christian life is not one of, of lounging around in laziness, right? It's also not, we don't put on high heels because the Christian life isn't just about a show like, hey, look at me, look at me on the runway. No, we put on athletic shoes because it is movement in Christ. We put on these solid pairs of athletic shoes, of good New Balance shoes. I, I just put that out there. Keep us plodding forward. So uncommon leaders, they get people in the right shoes for growth. This is discipleship. This is discipleship, brothers and sisters. That's what he's ex explaining here. That's the role of a dad is to disciple their children. You want to be an uncommon leader? Well, be a discipler. Here's, here's just a very brief, uh, clear, concise definition of discipleship. You ready for it? It's a word that we use all the time. It's like, it's part of our mission. It's what we do. We want to make disciples. But what is discipleship then? Discipleship is intentionally investing in someone for their spiritual good. Intentionally investing in someone for their spiritual good. And how that plays out is, is a myriad of ways, 
but it's intentionally investing in others for their spiritual good. And this is what we're about. It's about moving people along. You've heard our purpose statement, right? We, we exist. We want to see lost people saved, come out of darkness into salvation, but not just stay there. We want to see the saved matured, that we want to see you growing in your faith, but not just staying there so you know all these things about God, but then we want to see the mature multiplied all for the glory of God. Then you discipling, of you using your gifts, of you equipping and, in, and investing in other people. That's what we do. This is the purpose of what, why we exist. This is what a father does. This is what a leader does. Is it's about movement. It's about discipleship. So I would just challenge you, if you want to be a leader, then do it. Take a step and reach out this week. Whether you want to disciple somebody or maybe you're realizing, you know, I need to be discipled. I need some input. I need to be moving in this direction toward Christ. Or I need to be using my gifts to pour out. And we, we, we want that to be happening over and over and over. And our ministries here as a church, as you are involved in other things around the city, in your workplace, but this is what it's about. It's about multiplication. It's about discipleship. It's about growth in Jesus Christ for that person's good and the glory of God. That's why we exist. That's what the church is. It's the discipleship factory. It's why we have children's ministry. It's what's happening there. It's what's happening even right now as we are under God's word. So do it this week. Reach out to somebody. Put it on your calendar. Who can I disciple? Who can disciple me? So as we conclude here, we've seen these verses. We see leadership. We know what God wants to be a church worth imitating, needs leaders worth following that are uncommon in their leadership. So we conclude, what do common leaders do? They do work that burdens others, either out of their own laziness or their own overworking. That's what common leaders do. They, common leaders cut corners. They skim off the top. They get ahead through manipulation. They live double lives. They also, they're cold-hearted authorities out for their own personal gain. But uncommon leaders work hard, live lives of integrity for the spiritual good of others. This is what we do. May Redemption Bible Church be filled with men and women who lead like this. May we, as we build what lasts, as we want to seek to be a force for the Lord here in our city and across the globe, as we're involved in church planting and making disciples on an individual level and on a global level. May God fill us with leaders, men and women, worth following like this. May it even be some of us in this room for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me now? God in heaven, what, a, what an awesome thing it is to, to be a part.